Well, thank you very much. As you take your Bibles and turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I do want to thank you and appreciate you being here for celebrate apparently my last birthday. And, uh, I didn't know that Harold was a prophet. But uh, we're looking at prophecy today, so maybe that'll work out just great. Maybe I'll, I'll have something to say about that later, Harold. I'm not sure. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 today, look, starting at verse 23 as we complete this uh, particular uh, chapter in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, several years ago, maybe, maybe 30 years ago now, I suppose, somebody from our church, an older couple, had gone out west and they came back with an aspen tree. They had seen all these beautiful aspen trees out there. They're, the aspen groves are gorgeous. And they wanted to have one and plant it in their front yard in Chatham. Uh, what they didn't know, the tree died, by the way, because aspen trees don't grow in this kind of environment very well. And it's a good thing, because had they, uh, trees that actually survive in our kind of environment uh, become a menace very quickly. The aspen trees start having little aspen trees grow up all over the yard, underneath the house, underneath the sidewalk, and everybody's neighbors, uh, every neighborhood, because aspen trees are not normal trees. Aspen trees are trees that... Uh, all the little shoots you see are connected underground in the root system with the mother tree. So you have one tree, you plant one mother tree, and underneath the ground grows all this root system in which there are groves of aspen trees all connected with one another. As a matter of fact, the largest living organism in the world is in central Utah. It's an aspen grove of 106 acres that is one tree with 106 acres full of aspen trees. But it's all connected. That's a pretty good picture of the body of Christ because uh, as we look at the body of Christ, Christians, we see individual believers everywhere and yet this, the truth is that we're united with one another. We're in union with one another and we're not simply individuals. We're united with, with one another. This is a lesson that the Corinthians needed to hear badly all the way through the book. Uh, they have been people who have uh, been individualistic. They're doing their own thing. They're, about, they're selfish or self-centered. Uh, they're, they're in desperate need of love. Uh, they lost the idea, the concept, the biblical concept of union, that they were united together as one. And so Paul is talking to them about that throughout the book. And as it comes to chapter 14, he is talking about the misuse of gifts. Now, as a matter of fact, chapters 12, 13, and 14, remember all the way through the book, he's been correcting them about all sorts of selfish things they're doing. But when he comes to those, these three chapters, he uh, zeroes in on, on the spiritual gifts and the functioning of the body of Christ and how that should function. Chapter 12 talks about that functioning. Chapter 13 talks about the, the uh, necessity of love in that relation, those relationships. And then chapter 14, he gets very narrow in his focus and begins to talk about one issue where they are definitely out of, out of control and out of focus with God, and that is the issue of tongues. And so chapter 14 is virtually all about tongues. What is he saying about tongues? Tongues is uh, languages being spoken by someone who doesn't know the language. These are not, these are not incoherent comment, uh, mumblings. They're not gibberish. They're languages unknown to the one who speaks them. It's, it would be a miracle of God for someone to be able to speak a language. They had never heard, never studied. It had to be a miracle of God. That's what tongues was all about. And so he's, as he talks about that here, this, this uh, gift of tongues... Uh, had been misused terribly in the church at Corinth, and he is correcting them all the way through this chapter as we have worked our way through it. 
And what we found so far, and we're just a quick review, in the first 12 verses, he tells us that tongues untranslated, uninterpreted, are absolutely useless in the body of Christ. They have no purpose because they do not edify. And we'll come back to that concept in a moment. All the spiritual gifts were, were given to edify. They were not given for any other purpose except to edify in one form or the other. And they don't do that in the church when nobody understands what you're saying. Secondly, tongues are useless in private devotions for the same reason. Uh, you can't edify others if you're in your own house, in your own closet, or whatever. Uh, they're not made for private devotions. Remember now, going back to chapter 12, all the gifts are made for edification. Uh, they're not made even to build us up. God gives us the Holy Spirit who uses the Word of God, which He inspires, to build us up, to sanctify us, to grow us in Christ. Uh, spiritual gifts are not given for that purpose. They're given to give away, to minister to other people. Uh, and so gifts have that purpose of edifying and reaching out to others. And you can't do that in your home when nobody else is around. Thirdly, we see that tongues are as given as a sign, verses 20 to 22. So tongues were not a throwaway. They were not useless. They were not a mistake on God's part. There was a definite purpose. Just jumping down for a moment to verse 22. So tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. So tongues have a definite purpose. We saw that in great detail last week. So if you want to go back and look at that, the manuscripts are online. I've written a booklet on, on this whole issue. Uh, you can get that and go back and listen to these things. I will not rehearse that again today. But the tongues are for a sign. They're for a sign to the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, that they're under the judgment of God for the rejection of God and principally the rejection of Jesus Christ, whom they put on the cross. That judgment would, would come about in 70 A.D. when the Lord destroyed Jerusalem and scattered the Jews all over the world. And uh, this, until that happened, tongues were, the purpose was to give a sign that judgment was coming for their unbelief. It's time to repent, and they would not. And then finally, uh, we're looking at today at the gifts, must, including tongues, all gifts, but including tongues, must be under the control of the user. And that is where we are today, starting with verse 23. The Corinthians seems to think, to believe, that in their services, they had to, if they had any kind of order, any kind of structure, uh, they would be limiting or quenching the Holy Spirit. You'll hear that often in those who believe in, the, in speaking in tongues and so forth, that if you don't allow these things to go forth in the congregation, you're quenching the Holy Spirit, you're fighting the Holy Spirit, and that would be wrong. So their services became, as we'll see, complete chaos, and they were definitely, they were definitely alive. They had lively services, but they were alive with, with fleshly and sinful passions and attitudes and energy and not with the power of the Spirit. So Paul says that the Holy Spirit is leading in, their, in lives, when he's leading, the church services as well as the believers will be under control. And so in order to ensure that control in the church, Paul, uh, when it gathers together, Paul now lays down timeless principles, five of them. That is to govern the church services when God's people come together. Five timeless principles. Number one, uh, let all things be done for edification. In verse 23, he says this, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and the ungifted man, men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're mad? But if all prophesy 
And an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. And the secrets of his heart are disclosed. He will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God certainly is among you. Here's one of the great governing rules of church worship, church gathered worship. The Corinthians were thinking that tongues was the greatest of all gifts. We've been dealing with that. They could think of nothing better than to have a whole church full of people speaking in tongues. Paul said that if you do that, and someone comes into your church service who is not a believer or ungifted, that is someone who's never been around the spiritual gifts, don't have these kind of gifts, they're going to think you are what? Mad. The word mad here is a Greek word for manic or maniac. Uh, it, it is a word that it talks about temporary insanity on the part of some individual because of enthusiasm. We can see that on positive and negative ways. You can see it in a positive way, I suppose, when you, when you see the, uh, or negative way, when you see maybe a fairly mild-mannered man who's at his son's baseball game, and the umpire calls him out, and the father doesn't agree with the call, and he charges the field, and he abuses the umpire verbally and sometimes physically, and this is a person who probably has never done anything like that in his life. But under the, under the enthusiasm and the anger of the moment, they go manic. They go mad. They go crazy, so to speak. On the positive side, you can see the same, same thing going to a, a musical concert where people do bizarre things they would never do under normal circumstances or a baseball game. Have you ever been to a baseball game where maybe, the, maybe it's a big game, your team just won the World Series? at the last strikeout or whatever, you turn to the person next to you whom you've never met in your life. They've probably been drinking beer all, all 17 innings and dripping all over them. But you turn to them and you give them a big old hug. What's wrong with you? Why would you do that? It's, this, it's the madness of the moment. It's getting carried away with the moment. That's the word that we're using here. People will come in and they'll look at what you're doing and think you're crazy. That's what he's saying. On the other hand, on prophecy, he says... That if you all prophesy, verse 31 will tell us one by one, not all at once, one by one, then the unsaved will hear it, they'll fall on their face, and they'll worship God as they respond to the Word of God. The Word of God penetrates their hearts. And that is because prophecy is a oral form of the Word of God. It's a spoken form of the revelation of God. And as a revelation of God, it's understandable. The people will hear it and understand it. And they will respond to it. A number of years ago now, I've been a long time, there was a lady that came to our church service. I don't know, remember what I was preaching on, but after I was done and some of the crowd had dissipated, uh, she came up to me at the back of the auditorium and said to me, uh, who told you I was coming today? Who, who told you about me? And she was angry, actually. She wasn't real thrilled. And, uh, and I said, I don't even know who you are. I've never met you. I don't, nobody's ever told me anything about you. What's going on? Well, you, you just said exactly where I am in my life. You just spoke as if you were speaking to me personally, and I don't like it particularly, but who told you I was coming? Well, you know, I think that I've had many people say something similar throughout the years, and I think it happens all the time, quite frankly. The Word of God exposes our hearts, as we'll see. The Word of God speaks to where we are and constantly is touching our lives where we live. That's what the Word of God does. But if you don't understand the Word of God, then that can't do that. Tongues cannot do that if they're not translated, Paul is saying. So he's saying basically this. Do you want people to come into your congregation and think you're crazy? You're full of crazy? Or are you full of God? Which, is, which do you want? You know, I can think of nothing 
more wonderful than to have people come into this congregation and say, that church is full of God. God is among them. Uh, That that would be a success story, wouldn't it? There's a big church, one of the biggest churches in the the world, in America anyway, that at the end of every uh, service, the the next day, all all the staff gathers together, and their question is this, did we get a win? today did we win today by winning did we were we excellent in all that we did blah 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 and the church is not preaching the gospel they're not preaching the truth so it doesn't matter what win they get but it would matter if the people knew god was among us if they came here and they saw lives they saw love they saw the word they saw prayer they saw the music that spoke of god and they said i i don't get it i don't quite understand it but god is among those people somehow that would be the greatest possible outcome. Verse 26, uh, Paul goes on though, he likes to sum up his own thoughts. He says, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. All things for edification. The Corinthians have been using their gifts selfishly. They were self-centered. They were abusive to one another. They were divisive. And he says, "All th- this is the sixth time in chapters 12 and 14, that he says all things are to be done for edification, for the building up of the body, for the building up of one another. Warren Wiersbe on this passage says this, their key word was not edification, it was exhibition. Everyone was doing their own thing, and Paul says let there be edification. This of course uh, has other applications outside of tongues. Notice, notice the verse here, notice all the different ways where the word of God is being proclaimed as we find in other places of the New Testament. When you assemble, each one has a psalm. We sung a psalm a while ago. That was a great song, Psalm 42, I think it was. Was that 42 it was based on? 46. Great job, James. That was wonderful. And that was a, a psalm, right from the, speaking right from the psalms. A teaching, the preaching, the revelation he's talking about here. We'll get back to that. A tongue, an interpretation. And all things be done for edification. Edification, the building up. Of one another. So worship should be the proper response to the revelation of God's word. So if you come here and you hear all the things we've done today, prayer and music and fellowship and, and preaching of the word, and you, uh, it should lead you to worship. If it leads you to anything else, that's, that's inadequate. It might lead you to some other positive things that uh, we could look at here and we'll mention, but if it doesn't lead you to worship, it, the job hasn't been done should lead you to worship. So the intended outcome of the revelation of God here is this five movements of the revelation of God. I want you to look at that in verse 24. Here's what should happen. If an unbeliever, for example, came in here. He's talking about unbelievers here. Okay, so the church is, is the body of Christ. It's believers. But in every, every service here, there are some unbelievers. And almost any church you'd go to, there are probably some unbelievers. And so he's speaking about unbelievers coming into the assembly. And he says the unbeliever is, first of all, convicted by all. The ministry of the word by the church convicts of sin and righteousness because according to to John, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. And the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to do as his major instrument or tool to convict us of sin and righteousness. So that's what the ministry of the word calls for. Secondly, the unbeliever is called to account by all. Uh, the ministry of the word, it calls to commitment and actions. It calls for us to take responsibility. 
uh, not all will respond positively. Not everyone is going to turn to Christ. Uh, an unbeliever comes in and, and hears all the things. Even if it's perfect, they're, not all will turn to Christ, he says. But some will be at least called to account. The Word of God gets in our face. The Word of God gets right up close and personal. And whether you like it or not, whether you reject it or accept it, the Word of God calls you to account. It lays before you the truth of God's revelation and says, here it is. What will you do with it? That's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? Everybody needs to be held to account, even if they don't like it. Thirdly, the secrets of an unbeliever's heart are disclosed. Their inner life is exposed. The Word of God does that. It, it penetrates our hearts and our minds. It reveals our secrets, exposes us. You know, we're all hiders. We all hide. We hide from other people who we are and what we are. We hide from ourselves often who we are and what we are. But the Word of God will not let us hide. It seeks us in every little corner of our life. It goes into every little closet. And it, re and it reveals to us who we are. And what our real need is. And, our, and calls us to follow Christ. It, it reveals those secrets. It's kind of like a theater. Everybody's probably been to a play. Where uh, uh, behind the curtain is the props and the actors. And you're out there, and when they open up the curtain, you see everything. What if they kept the curtain closed? Wouldn't be much of a play, would it? You, wouldn't, you might hear the words, but you wouldn't get the essence of what's going on. It, the curtain is opened. You see the props. You see the players. You hear the words, and you see what's going on. The Word of God does exactly that. It, is a, it pulls back the curtain on the secrets of your heart and mind and reveals us for who we are and then calls us to Him. That's what the God's Word does. Fourth, the unbeliever will worship God. It uh, doesn't say they'll become a Christian necessarily, but they'll worship him whether they wanted to or not. And finally, the unbeliever will declare his, his presence. I've already mentioned that a moment ago. Even if they do not come to Christ, they record the reality of God among those people. And that is a wonderful thing to be true. So, the uh, first principle that Paul lays down for the church gathered is edification. All things will be done for edification. Six times. Come together to build up the body of Christ, to be built up in the Word of God. Secondly, tongues are to be controlled. In verse 27, he says this, If anyone speaks in a tongue, he should be, it should be by two or at most three, each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Paul's been speaking in generalities, and now he's going to get down to the specifics. Everything is to be done in, for edification. But now he's, and as he gets down to the specifics, he starts with tongues. And he says, he gives us three guidelines on the use of tongues. Now remember, tongues still had a purpose at this point in time. This is 55 AD, about. Uh, tongues was a sign to unbelieving Jews that God was bringing judgment upon them. That judgment wouldn't come for another 15 years. So tongues had a purpose when used properly. As a, as a sign of judgment. If they're going to be used in the church at all, he says, here is the guidelines. Number one, two or three messages in tongues would be given and no more. It's not going to be chaos. It's not going to be a whole group of people talking in tongues at the same time. It's not going to be dominated by tongues. It's going to be under control, two or three at a given service at the most. Last week, uh, somebody uh, communicated to me that when they were in a uh, 
Pentecostal type church years ago, they were taught at a Bible study how to pray and speak in tongues. So somebody at this Bible study taught them how to do it, said, repeat after me and do this or that or the other. And they began to speak in tongues. But they told me, you know, almost from the very beginning, they, they were just suspect about what was going on. And as she, uh, she told the other people, she wasn't so sure this was real. Uh, the people said, well, that's the devil trying to, trying to discourage you. Keep on doing it. Eventually, they, they moved from that. Let me say this about that. There's no such thing as a class on speaking in tongues. Nobody teaches you to speak in tongues. It is never found in the Bible. There's no courses. There's no manuals. The three times we find people speaking in tongues in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, every one of them were spontaneous, unexpected, and nobody taught them how to do it. It was a miracle of God. Okay? Now, quite frankly, if you can give me a class on how to speak Spanish in 13 seconds, I'll take it. All right? <laughs> but I've never seen that because biblical tongues are languages, not gibberish. And that is a miracle. And nobody teaches that. So if you get involved in a group that says, come to this class, we'll teach you how to speak in tongues, or tries to get you to do that, get out. You know immediately they're not following the word of God. The second guideline, one at a time, each taking a turn. Tongues are to be under control. Well, someone says, well, what, what if I, I just can't control myself? What, what if the Spirit comes on me and I just got to speak out in tongues? Well, Paul says, you don't have to. Paul says, you should be under control. That's not the Spirit. There's no such thing, folks, also as a holy trance or being slain in the Spirit. There's no teaching like that in the Bible anywhere. Nobody teaches that. There's no example of that. That is not of God. It's, it's all over the world. People all over the world, there's more than millions of them, are falling down in trances and being so-called slain in the spirit, something never taught. God does not work that way, but somebody does. Satan. But not God. Be very careful. But again, this has been ignored by millions of people today all over the world. It's not uncommon to see whole services dedicated to speaking in tongues and people all over the place speaking in tongues at the same time. Someone sent me a video this week. It's kind of caustic, so I'm not going to show it to you. But uh, there was a, a man, uh, looked like perhaps in Africa, it's hard to say, but he was speaking in tongues, and he was, in a, it was being slain in the spirit, and the pastor was popping him and you know, hollering at him, and he was squirming all over the ground, doing all these languages and so forth, uh, whatever he's doing. And, uh, and, he got a, and he got a phone call on his cell phone. And he immediately stopped what he's doing, reached in his phone and made a phone and talked to the person, and then went right back to it. Now, if that doesn't expose what's going on, I don't know what does. An interpreter, thirdly, must be, be present. Why? Because, as Paul has already said, tongues have no purpose except, through, by be, except being interpreted in edification. Look at chapter 14, verse 5. I wish that all of you spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. Greater is he who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. In verse 19. However, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind, so that I may be instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words with a tongue, because they're not edified. And then in verse 26, uh, we must have edification. Let all things be done for edification. So, verse 28, he says, if there is no interpreter, we must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So does that mean if you, if you don't have an interpreter or a translator, 
You just speak in tongues right there in your own seat? Well, if you just read this verse on its own, it might seem that way, but he's already dismantled that whole argument. So pop back to verse 14, where he said, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. If I, what is the outcome then? Now here it is. I go over it again. I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing in the, with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. It's not two different things, folks. It's not, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll pray with the tongues over here and I'll pray with my mind over here and sing with the two. It's, a, it's They're combined. There's no such thing as mindless prayer. There's no such thing as prayer in which we don't know what we're saying. Paul dismantles that clearly in that verse of Scripture, in my opinion. So if we're not under the control of God, then we're under the control of our flesh and under the control of sin. And what happens then is a joyless, confused Christian. So principle number one, all things are to be done for edification. Principle number two, we're, we must be under control in our services. Principle number three, peace, not confusion, should characterize the church. Peace, not confusion, should characterize the church. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let, let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you all can prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Okay, here are some guidelines for prophecy. And remember, prophecy was the revelation of God in an oral form that was being given prior to the time in which the prophets and New, and New, Test, and New Testament apostles were still on the earth, still establishing the church, Ephesians 2.20. And once that was done, once the scriptures are complete and the apostles and prophets are gone, there are no more. But there were prophets at this time, and he is giving guidelines on what they should do. And the first thing he says, only one prophecy at a time, no chaos, no chaos. I, I don't know if I was just having a bad dream or thinking about this, but the other day, I, uh, two nights ago, I had a weirdest dream. You'll appreciate these weird dreams. I, I, I dreamed I was teaching a class here at church, and it was chaotic. I, was, I wasn't prepared, and all of you were acting like you do on Wednesday night as you come in the room. It was just, it was a disaster. And, and then David Beakley, our missionary to South Africa, was at the other end of the room, and he was preaching at the same time I was preaching. And then I heard rumor that there was a big to-do, some Christians in another room weren't getting along, and it was a big loggerhead, and only the old-timers remember this, but Dietz Cornelius was solving the problem. <laughs> now, Dietz has been dead 20 years, hasn't he, uh, or something like that, but... And what, I haven't thought about deeds in 20 years, probably. Here he is in the other room. So that's, that, maybe my mind was thinking about chaos. I don't know. It certainly was chaotic. And so here we have that, that kind of chaos is not of God, is what he's saying here. Secondly, uh, second guideline, prophecies are to be evaluated, verse 29. Probably most think it's, there are others of the past judgment. The others are other prophets. Why would it be necessary for prophets to evaluate the message a prophet gives. I want you to go back to chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, written about a year later. And we find that false prophets and false apostles have already infiltrated this church. Verse 3 of chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. But I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from their simplicity and the devotion to Christ. Go over to verse 13. 
He says, for such men are false prophets, are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Paul knew that false teachers, false prophets, false apostles, so-called, had infiltrated the church already. And they were giving out messages. And he says the other men of God there, the other prophets, the other leadership of the church, whoever that might be, is, has to evaluate what these people are saying on the basis of the revealed word of God. And if it was not in line with the revealed word of God, it must be rejected by the people that are in the church. Going back to our passage then, we see a third guideline for our prophets, and that is the goal of prophecy is to, is to learn and exhort. Look at verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that they all may learn and all may be exhorted. So prophecy does two things. It teaches and it exhorts. And this basically is what I would call the essence of true preaching. Preaching is teaching the Word of God. If you, if you just have a bunch of light and emotionalism, uh, you're not preaching the Word of God. You must teach what the Word of God says. But also, true preaching uh, is, is uh, exhortion, exhortation. I mean, to, ex- to exhort here, the word is, is the idea of pleading, of calling someone to make a, take, take a step to apply this truth to your life. It's a word used when the prodigal son's father was putting on a banquet and the older son would not come to the banquet because he was mad and jealous, remember? And the prodigal son's father went out and exhorted his son, appealed to his son, said, son, come to the banquet. Your, your brothers come home. Don't sit out here and sulk. Come in, come in and rejoice with us. He's repented. He's come home. That's the word. To appeal to, uh, to one another, to, to make application to what the Word of God is teaching. And that's what the prophets are to do. Someone has said this, one commentator, I like this, those who, came, who come to church with their pain should find comfort. Those estranged should find open doors for reconciliation. Those downhearted should find encouragement. That's the application of the word. A fifth guideline is that the speakers can and must control themselves. Verse 32. The spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. That only means that the prophet can control themselves. They're not out of control. God doesn't come upon them in a trance. And then finally, God is not a God of confusion. Verse 33. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. If the Lord is at work, peace reigns. Not confusion. Not chaos. Not division. Not anger. Peace. That's how you know God is at work in a church and in your own heart. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and lives in Christ Jesus. Peace. Principle number four. We've seen the principle of edification and control and peace. Principle number four. Women are to keep silent in the churches. Verses 34 to 36. This is obviously one that causes a lot of interest today with the egalitarian uprising within the church of Christ today. So what is he saying concerning this? Keep in, keep in mind the context. This is a hard one. But keep in mind the context. He's talking in the context of confusion and disruption. We find back in chapter 11, verse 5, that he allowed women to prophesy under certain conditions. 
So this is not an absolute blanket, total quietness. Can women sing in the church, give a testimony in the church, and read scripture, so forth? Yes. He's not saying that. But what he is saying, I believe, especially with the idea of questions here, is that these women were disrupting the church by asking questions and perhaps challenging the eldership, the leadership of the church, putting them on the spot, disrupting the service itself. And he's saying that they must not be allowed to do that. Go over to 1 Timothy chapter 1 very quickly. Chapter 1, verse 2. About a decade later, Paul writes to Timothy and he clarifies any confusion that might be with that verse of Scripture. This is much clearer and much easier for us to reach out and understand. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, talking about the same thing, the assembled church. He says, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And the Greek word for men, men there is male. Not the, not the word anthropos, which is men or women. It's specifically men. Men are to lead the church in prayer. And so in our worship time together, men lead the pr in prayer. Drop down to verse, ele verse 11. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, for, but to remain quiet. There's our clear teaching here. In other words, women have a vital, important role in the body of Christ, but that is not the role of leading the church or teaching the word of God to men in the church. And so it's very clear there what Paul is after. Go back to our passage. Let's bring it all together with principle number five, verse 37. Verse 37, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in orderly manner. The here's the fifth principle. Scripture rules over experience. Scripture always rules over experience. We could hear some of the Corinthians saying, but, but we have had this experience, Paul. Uh, we, we, we're receiving great satisfaction from doing these things, and, and we're, we have lively services, and our women are feeling really a part of the church. We're, we're doing great here, Paul. Uh, and besides, Brother Jason has just given us a revelation saying that what we're doing is God's, has God's approval. Are you telling us that, God, that Brother Jason has not heard from God? And Paul says, that's right. Brother Jason has not heard from God. As a matter of fact, in verse 37, I write to you, what I write to you are, is the Lord's commandments. And if anyone does not agree with the Lord's commandments, he is not to be recognized, verse 38. That is, he is to be ignored. Ignore such a person. They're not of God. Ignore their revelation. And necessary, you have to, might have to ignore them. They must submit themselves to the authority of the word and not be drug away by the experiences that they, they think that they have had. So Corinth was anything but a perfect church. And so I, I want to say this as we sum up chapter 14. We've looked at 14 chapters of correction, mainly about behavior. The only correction he needs to give is in chapter 15 concerning doctrine. And in chapter 15, he'll, we'll talk about that. And that's a glorious chapter. I'm looking so forward to it on the resurrection. But he's in 14 chapters here of correction of their behavior. 
And he's kind of summed it all up now. And we can, we can know this for sure, right? This is not a perfect church. Matter of fact, this is an ugly church. This is a tough church. It's a self-centered, divisive, sometimes mean-spirited church that desperately needs love, chapter 13. Today, you know what most of us would do, apparently, because of this great exodus of the church going on throughout the country? Most people would say, I just won't go to church anymore. I won't go to a church like that. I won't go to a church so messed up, so imperfect. I'll stay home and watch live stream, or, or I'll read my Bible at home. I'll do my own thing, but I'm not going to get involved in a church that has so many problems. And that's interesting to me as I think about it because Paul didn't say that. With all these issues in the church, he never said, quit going. He never said, give up on them. He never said, move on. He says, yeah, they're very imperfect. Now you do something about it. You show the example of Christ. You, you live in, under the authority of the word of God and you make progress. Paul didn't write all these words just to get on their case. He wrote all these things to change them, just as he writes them to change us as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is well known as the uh, German Lutheran pastor during the Nazi regime in Germany. He ultimately lost his life as a martyr for the cause he writes a, a very interesting quote that I'll close with today. He says this, Disillusionment with our local church is a good thing because it destroys our false expectations of perfection. The sooner we give up the illusion that a church might be perfect in order to love it, the sooner we'll quit pretending and start admitting we're all imperfect and in need of grace, and this is the beginning of real community. That's a good thought. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for your, your truth and your word. And Lord, I thank you so much for what we have heard in, in this chapter. It's been a tough chapter, Lord, but I trust and pray that it's a chapter that challenges our lives in multitudes of ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.